Minutes of the Money Minutes. Today, the big superannuation questions. Should you be forced to put more in? Should you be made to sell down your house in retirement? Should some pay more tax? It's great to have your company for another episode of the Money Minutes. And look, I'm sorry I've been out of action the past week or so, but look, I must admit that I had more pressing matters to deal with. But I will, I've got to tell you, be back uh, with more of these podcasts over the next few weeks. Uh, We'll get them cracking again. Now, look, I've been out of action only a week, but the government's big report into our superannuation system, well, that's more than four months overdue. Now this report is the blueprint for the way we save for our retirement and how we are saved. Even before the document was released, it was being criticised by some sections of the industry superannuation fund area for potentially reducing the amount of money that workers will put away for retirement into the future. Now, this report's 650 pages long, so you don't necessarily need all the time to read it. This podcast is going to tell you all you need to know with the leading independent actuary, Michael Rice. I think going to 12%. It's a good idea. I think you, you then have to deal with people with too much money and people with not enough separately. For middle Australia, 12% will give them a good income. It will take pressure off the age pension. Now, as I say, that legislation has already been passed. It will raise your superannuation contributions from the current 9.5% to 12% by 2025. The industry super funds say it'll reduce the amount of money available for people in retirement The counter-argument run by many, even including the Reserve Bank now, is that by pushing the super figure higher, it will potentially reduce wage rises or even discourage employers from hiring people into the future. The Labor Party and its leader, Anthony Albanese, have shot straight back, saying that there's been precious little wages growth, even as superannuation contributions have risen to 9.5% over time. So they're saying, where's the evidence? And you do get the sense the government's considering this evidence-based report as a justification for freezing contributions at 9.5% or maybe allowing them to rise to the round number of 10%, then just stopping it there. In his press conference as this report was released, this was the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. In terms of the superannuation guarantee, as you know, it currently is at 9.5% and is legislated to to go to 12% over time. Um, the report uh, looks at this in detail and makes um, the comment, and I'll quote it, maintaining the superannuation guarantee rate at 9.5% would allow for higher living standards in working life. Working life income for most people would be around 2% higher in the long run. So the report goes into some detail about the trade-off between a working life income and people's wages, and that with an increase in the superannuation guarantee, and points out that the most effective way for people to secure themselves in retirement is not necessarily an increase in the superannuation guarantee, uh, but by more efficiently using the savings that they do have. So you sort of get the sense that maybe the government and the Treasurer are even thinking about freezing what is currently a part of legislation. But the argument really is not straightforward. It's highly nuanced. It's a matter of money today or money tomorrow. For many middle and higher income earning Australian families, there's actually enough wealth to sustain themselves during their retirement years. But many people do not tap into their major source of wealth, that is, their family home. 
And because the family home is capital gains tax-free, many choose not even to downsize to extract equity on which to live. In other words, it's a way of moving money from one generation to the next. And this is where we get into the highly sensitive political area. Actually, the whole debate's political, let's face it. Because remember the huge debate about dividend imputation credits that partly might have been responsible for so many people being suspicious of Bill Shorten and the Labor Party before the last election. Well, imagine trying to be the politician trying to sell to the public the possibility of being forced to consume your house in retirement or even potentially taxes on do-it-yourself pensions and annuities that currently have no tax at all. So let's go back to the politician who could be responsible for trying to change all of this. That's Josh Frydenberg, again, talking in his press conference about the family home and retirees. The report points out how important home ownership is to people's security in retirement. Uh, It points out that... uh, Around 76% of people over the age of 65 own their own home. And that as a consequence, uh, this allows them to have more discretionary income. And it also provides provides an opportunity for them to draw down on the equity in their home in retirement. Um, The report is very comprehensive. And the report should give Australians confidence about the soundness and the sustainability of Australia's retirement income system. It should also give people confidence that the government policies to boost home ownership, whether it's through the first uh, home super saver scheme for the first home loan deposit scheme or the home builder scheme, is helping to increase home ownership, which is clearly something that the report points out is a positive for people in retirement. So you can see, reading between the lines, that this report is a catalyst for a change in the way you save for retirement, how your family home is viewed and maybe even how you're taxed. But remember, as I keep on saying, it is political. The existing $3 trillion superannuation industry, including the immensely powerful industry funds that unions are so invested in, well, they want more money going to super, up to that 12% mark. It will not only make those funds, which already are changing corporate behaviour, sometimes for good, sometimes questionably, even more powerful again. Even this week, you've had the bizarre situation of the former Prime Minister Paul Keating, the architect of our highly successful compulsory superannuation system, accusing the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, of using that bombshell report into Australia's SAS. You know, remember 23 incidents of alleged unlawful killings of 39 Afghan people. Well, there's a smokescreen for the detail of this superannuation report. Now, stranger things have happened in politics. To me, if true, that would be beyond the pale. But look, as I say, if you don't have time to read this 650-page report, this is your chance to understand what it's about and why actions taken from it will be so controversial. With Michael Rice, one of Australia's leading independent actuaries who for 30 years has helped shape our current superannuation system. Michael, many thanks for your time. Good morning, Ross. Okay, so Mike Callaghan and this committee, it's not a second or third rate committee. This is really a committee that has studied in some depth and certainly very, very quickly the way in which it believes Australia's retirement income system, its superannuation system, is going to revolve. It is. And the the interesting thing about this review is that the government specifically said, don't give me any recommendations. We want to have a fact base on which we can develop policy. Now, it's very difficult 
to write about things without pointing out areas which could be improved. So there are a number of suggestions in the document, which really are recommendations. But I think the good thing about this is while, while there's probably nothing that's totally new, some things have just been expressed in a better way, we've now got a compendium. We've got a single document that lists everything about our system, highlights things that are wrong. And, and obviously where we see things that are wrong, we can then work to improve them. Despite the fact that, that all these documents focus on, on problems, it's interesting that they started by saying that the Australian retirement income system is effective, sound, and its costs are broadly sustainable. And I have to say that you can't say that for most countries in the world. Okay, so if we go to that very point, right, that means that, say, for example, the compulsory superannuation system set up by Paul Keating, um, of course, it's now evolved. Uh, it's got now to 9.5% of a, of a worker's uh, income is placed aside in this compulsory superannuation. But one of the key areas, which seems to be an open question now for government to perhaps intervene, intervene, is that you could not have, as is now legislated, the increase in that superannuation guarantee charge from 9.5% of a person's pay to 12% of a person's pay over the coming couple of years. In fact, that there is argument that it should be frozen where it is right now or around 10% potentially. That's right. Now, uh, the Liberals have never really supported it. I mean, Tony Abbott came out the other day and publicly stated that he wasn't in favour. His behaviour in Parliament showed that at the time. Uh, you've got to remember, it took a decade to go from 3% to 9% up to 2002. And then it was supposed to go to 12 by, I think, 2019. But there'd been a succession of freezes that we've only had um, two quarter percent increases to get it up to 95 and now people are looking at it and saying, hey, maybe that's enough. Maybe we don't need 12. Now, we, um, a couple of actuaries, including me, wrote a paper in June last year. It's on our website. And, and we came up um, and said that a range of 10 to 15% was needed. Now, that, that's quite a big range. But effectively, what it says is that the lower you position the SG, the mandatory employer contribution, in that range, the higher the dependency on the age pension will be. But if you got up to, say, 15%, then the amount of people on the age pension would fall away dramatically. So in a way, we're looking at, should the government be spending its money on the age pension, or should it be encouraging people to save more for themselves, reducing um, you know, future taxes needed to support the age pension? And it's a bit of a balancing game. So it comes back to the old money today or money tomorrow argument, doesn't it, really? Because I do even note, say, for example, that with coronavirus, uh, the government announced that people could take out $10,000 in the last financial year, $10,000 in this financial year from their superannuation. And so uh, today numbers have come out saying that the early withdrawal of superannuation has reached $35.2 billion. Now, to be honest, Treasury did say they thought it will be $42 billion in total. It's not likely to get to that amount of money. But it does show that there are people who really, if given the choice of money today or money tomorrow, will take the money today to try and deal with the, the problems that they have today and, and leave the problems that they have tomorrow to, to another day, literally. That's right. And you could argue that if we didn't have this mandatory system, that money wouldn't have been available at all. So um, 
what's interesting to me is how do we target circumstances like a, a crisis a pandemic? And can we use superannuation to support people in the time when they, they have an unforeseen problem? Already people can draw money out for hardship. But, but it's hard to get yeah. out. You, you and I both know yeah. how difficult it is to get out. And I've been through this with a friend of mine recently who was critically ill um, and indeed terminally ill. Uh, and ultimately, the the paperwork and the, uh, the the way in which the financial institution went around this withdrawal was absolutely and utterly out of all proportion with the capacity for, uh, shall I say, empathy towards the person's situation. I, I can understand. Well, let, let's have a look at people in different um, income brackets. You know, there's been a big argument. Senator Andrew Bragg has said that he doesn't see why we should give super to people who earn less than 40000 a year. And there's an argument for that, isn't there, surely, because those people are going to there end is. up in an age pension anyway. So why wouldn't they have money today? Because they're going to be on the other taxpayers, in the taxpayers' pocket once they reach retirement years anyway. It's true. Of course, not everybody stays on that income. Some people might be, you know, they might be at university and work part-time. Uh, they might have a uh, spouse that earns a lot more money. So you can't generalise totally. Uh, the other issue, though, um, Ross, is if you were on 40 grand and there were enough government support to keep you going anyway, wouldn't you like to retire with a couple of hundred grand uh, or even $100,000 from your career to top up your age pension and help you live better? Maybe you would. I agree with that. But then there is still that argument as to whether that person might have been better off during their working life. Um, because you don't want a situation which has been suggested that a person could end up better off financially with the age pension and their superannuation in their retirement years as they were during their working life. That doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense no. as compared with the normal retirement model. That's true. And, and maybe a solution, one of the things Andrew Bragg did say was that people, when they fill in their tax return, if they only earn 40 grand, they can say, well, hey, I put four grand in super. I've got a credit card debt, tick the box and ask for the money to get back to you. So, Which is almost like an opt-out situation, which is not an unreasonable thing, whether that could be done administratively, I just wonder, and whether it would be wrought, it would be the other thing to, to consider. So then we move into the middle income brackets, where quite clearly people are on going to be, maybe once their superannuation comes in, they're more likely to have a part pension rather than a full pension, and they're more likely to be relying on some of their superannuation, which eventually will dissipate in their retirement years, and they will ultimately spend their, their later years on a, full, on a full pension. That would be a fairly typical scenario for a middle-income worker. That's right. And, and this report said that those people will get about 65 to 75% of their pre-retirement earnings, and given that your expenses go down, they can maintain their living standards. Now... We, we would argue slightly technically on that, that, in that they discount the age pension at CPI rather than wages, and that means that it's got a higher value in their numbers. But um, it's not terribly out of line with what you'd expect. I think the issue, though, is every year people get more demanding about their, their expectations of what they want. So what you're setting today might not be what people want in the future. And if you leave it too late, they'll uh, not be able to catch up. Now, our view is that if you move those people to 12%, you'd have a lot more flexibility 
you could, if you found that you were overfunding, then you can always tax the benefits later or use it to, some of it to support aged care costs. You know what I mean? You, you can, if you've got too much money, there are always things you can do with it. But if you don't have enough money, then it always comes back to the government paying. And what you've also indicated in your report is your recommendation would be that even money coming out of allocated pensions, do-it-yourself pensions, as it were, um, that that money should not be taxed uh, at zero as it is at the moment, that in fact it should be taxed at 15% like superannuation. And so that would also deal with clawing back some of the taxation if people ended up, as a result of having 12% contributions into their super funds, that would end up giving some of those tax concessions back to the government in the longer term. It would, and I think there are other things that happen if you've got a, a you know a good private sector superannuation system. Firstly, you do take money off the unfunded government pension, and you know our figures show, and, and they're in the report that the the age pension costs will fall from two point six percent of GDP to about two point three percent in uh, forty years, uh, probably even closer than that. That's way way under. The rest of the world, you know, 8 to 10% is common in a lot of the Western world. But the reason why it's like that is because people have their own savings, their own superannuation to rely upon. And therefore, if you like, on the other side of the coin, the concessions are given and are increasing to people with superannuation because of the amount of money that's being poured into superannuation. This is also one of the arguments as we go to the next demographic, which is the high income demographic, that maybe some of the tax benefits to the higher income earner again need to be capped or reduced. Uh, and the reason is because they, in many ways, get the most significant benefits out of the tax concessions to superannuation, which continue to rise inordinately in comparison with the money that's being paid out in age pensions. That's right. I, I mean, earlier this year, uh, one of the papers came out and said the top 100 people in SMSS have got an average of $79 million each. Now, we all know you, you don't need that much money to live comfortably in retirement. So this has become a tax-free family trust for those people. And many of them are running multiple properties geared in, in their SMSF, for example. But surely this is something that you can fix in a different way. You could cap the amount of money in super. At the moment, you're only allowed to move 1.6 sorry, 1.6 million into the tax-free uh, pension earnings phase. 1.6 million per 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 couple per individual. and so therefore yeah very individual so a married couple two, 3.2 million dollars is still relatively generous you could argue that's right and you could say well maybe you should only be allowed another 1.6 say on top of that and if you've got more than that you should pull the excess out of this tax privileged environment it doesn't mean you've got to spend it you just invest it on a more normal tax position yes but so the, the government could easily cut the concessions by looking at the tail, the people who've got a lot of money in super. Given the fight over dividend imputation and the uh, excess uh, credits that were there in the last election campaign and, and that Bill Shorten was proposing, and you could argue this might have been a swing factor for him politically uh, in losing an election that he was not expected to lose, and it would have been at the margin, certainly a lot of retirees uh, and a lot of prospective retirees would have been looking at their shared dividends then. Anybody who would be su suggesting right now to, to cap the tax benefits of superannuation, it would be a very brave politician. 
or it would have to come with lots of other carrots along the way for people because you could imagine the argument, the political argument that could be mounted against this. And already it seems that superannuation is simply a, a hotbed of political divide right now, even amongst the superannuation funds. You're right. I mean, I never understood why Labor didn't cap that benefit at, say, $10,000 so that the majority of people affected wouldn't be affected. You know, then you can argue that you're taxing the rich, which everybody likes to see. It's a little bit like the family home, right, being exempt from the means test on the age pension. This report shows that people who own their home in, in retirement are far, far better off than renters. Not only do they not pay rent, but they've got an asset that they can lean on if they run into trouble later. It's so, so true. And so one of the real arguments of this is that somehow we've got to not only educate people, but get better quality reverse mortgage products. Now, I'm right here to say that I've never really seen a, a very good reverse mortgage product in this country. Most of them um, are either one-way tickets to basically losing a person's control over a house, or indeed, if something goes wrong in the future, the person really doesn't have the 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 capacity to be able to fix up or pay, and it always seems compromised. It always seems that it's an area whereby those people who are putting out the reverse mortgages seem to be gaining more, significantly more long-term than those people who take out the reverse mortgages. So this is an area where if they are to say to people in their retirement years, you've got to tap your equity in your home, they've got to find some better products and give people incentive to do so. It's true. There are, there are a, f- a few more modern products like household capital, but also the government has this um, pension loan scheme where you can borrow uh, off the government for your mortgage. They, I think they charge um, oh, four, four and a bit percent, so it's still too high an interest rate. But um, people would feel more comfortable borrowing off the ga- government because they, they only get the capital back when you die or sell the house to go into aged care. Yes, and, and so there we, there we come to the, the final part of this conclusion. There's so much more of it. It's so nuanced, all of this. Because it is, if you like, talking about the future and the structure of our retirement income stream. And that is that the argument that too many people see superannuation as a way of preserving wealth, preserving capital, to pass on to the next generation. Now, many in the next generation who have lived with hex debts and credit card bills and big mortgages because the price of houses have gone higher, um, they're almost relying on that, um, that money coming from parents to effectively get themselves a little bit more comfortable in terms of their own debt situations. So if the government's now saying, well, hang on, we really think that the next generation should get less so that you consume more uh, and eat more in your retirement years and take less from the government in the way of pension, again, politically, I just wonder whether that message is going to resonate at all. Yes, and and there's some evidence that people in retirement frugal and draw as little as possible. And, you know, there was a comment that many people leave as a bequest more money than they started with. So they live on the earnings and don't draw their capital at all. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally get that. But that not necessarily is the way in which it was designed, that ultimately a person would um, uh, basically eat effectively their superannuation 
Um, and then what would happen is that they would be on an age pension and then maybe that they would take out some of the equity in their home to sustain their lifestyle or whatever. But of course, many people might also hang on to that home knowing that that really could be the deposit, the way in which they can get themselves into a retirement home um, or indeed a, a nursing home because of the True. amount of money that they have to put up front these days to be able to do so. I think some guidance, you know, better... Uh superannuation product defaults, say, um, put, you know, 10 or 15% of your money into a product that will feed you when you get to age 75, say, something like a deferred annuity or a GSA, or put it into an immediate annuity if you want to use it now, or even just invest it and buy an immediate annuity in 20 years' time. There are ways of saying, let's uh, bucket your expenditure patterns and make sure that we take care of your needs later. Because if if you know that you're covered from 75, then in the early 10 or 15 years of retirement when you're active, it's much easier to plan to spend the money knowing that you've, you've kept a nest egg for later. But what happens at the moment is most people actually don't know how long they're going to live. They don't know whether their costs are going to go up or not. Many of them probably don't go up by much. You know, if you think about it, the health system um, is largely paid for by government and the health funds rather than individuals. Uh, aged care is a total mess. We saw that in the in the Royal Commission. Uh, privatising that's been a disaster. That still worries people. So the problem I think happens in retirement is people have no income to they have no way of replenishing income because they they don't have any a salary anymore. So they're worried about losing money. And when they hear about health costs going up, aged care being expensive, retirement villages costing money, they can't plan because they've got no idea. The other thing is that we're all different. Some people will live to 90 and they'll be self-sufficient. Others will get dementia in their 60s. So pooling assets in some way will benefit the community. At the moment, we almost leave everybody to their own devices. And I thought that was the reason why compulsory superannuation was introduced, because the government didn't want to take the responsibility for longevity. The companies didn't want to take responsibility for longevity. And so they basically threw all of the risk and the responsibility back onto the individual. That was the way it was designed. That's right. Um, although the H pension is a longevity product, isn't it? It is, so absolutely. It, 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 it is part of your safety net. Look, if, if, if I think about it, personally, I, I think going to 12% is a good idea. I think you, you then have to deal with people with too much money and people with not enough separately. For middle Australia, 12% will give them a good income. It will take pressure off the age pension because um, we'll move more of our money to being uh, funded and in the private sector, it'll it'll build our capital markets much stronger, which means, you know, Australia quite recently became a net exporter of capital to the world through the superannuation system. Which is the fourth largest in the world, which, you know, as compared with our position as having 1% of the world's GDP is quite phenomenal. But the Reserve Bank also says that if you do go to 12%, 
um, then um, there could be workers who pay for that effectively by lower growth in wages or indeed fewer jobs being available because it's the employer who ultimately sees that on their on their wages bill. And so they sit there and say, well, why should I therefore try and employ more workers when ultimately that means that the wages bill is going to go up even higher? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I just don't think it, it's black and white. You've got things like payroll tax, personal taxes. So there are all sorts of levers that you could use to give people the same, um, uh, if you like, disposable income. And there's one final part about this, and that is the political argument comes into it yet again. So there's all aspects of this that are political. And one aspect of it is that the ordinary worker who sits there and sees a government that says, we're going to limit your superannuation to 9.5% or maybe 10% if they take it to there, says it's all right for you, the politician, to tell us to have our superannuation contributions capped at that rate when you get 15.4% of your pay put aside for superannuation by the taxpayer, by us. So, you know, if there is to be equity in this, you would imagine long-term that the politicians, federal politicians, have got to match their compulsory superannuation um, money that's put aside to the community. It just seems wrong um, that you have got this um, this this two-phase system. Well, the other thing is no public servants lost their job in the pandemic and um, none of their income went down. So I go back to Thomas Piketty, the, the French economist who talked about the growing inequality in the world as money moves into capital and away from income through globalization, technology and the like. And I think in an environment where people are not getting big wage rises, maybe an increase in super gives them something where they would have had nothing at all. There you go. Michael Rice, one of Australia's leading independent actuaries. And this retirement income review, um, the final report now, as Michael says, is really not recommendations necessarily, but simply a number of observations based on fact. In fact, many observations based on fact that in itself has created a political fight. From Rice Warner, as always, great to have a chat with you, Michael, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ross. Thanks for taking the time to listen. You can give us your feedback via social media, Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn or via your podcast app on Apple, Google, Spotify or Amazon. This has been a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes.